This evening's scripture passage, which we will contemplate, is found on Judges 2, Judges 2, page 373 in your pew Bibles. We'll contemplate the entirety of Judges 2, taking a look at a couple of different themes here. We'll be reading all 23 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord that we will contemplate this evening. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to its own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, going following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. 
the Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Thus far the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our ears, hearts, and minds. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we read from your word this evening, we ask that you would engage our hearts and minds. Lord, make them receptive to the words you would speak through your servant. We ask that above all you would be praised, that we may grow in faith and knowledge of you, and that we may be your servants as we walk in this world, holding out light in darkness. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. People of God, beloved in the Lord, brothers and sisters, have you ever had a schedule so busy you just couldn't get to anything? You have a to-do list that is so long. Maybe you have about ten things to do, and by the time you get to number three or four, you're so exhausted that you're about ready to just pass out on the bed. It almost seems at this point it's like every day for me. I never thought I would ever do a house remodel, and I have no skills in doing it whatsoever. So don't just do the work, but learn the work and then do the work. It takes three times as long because you learn it, you mess it up, you figure it out, and then you do it again. I would rather just study this. Let someone else do that. They have talents and skills that I couldn't imagine. But tonight we read about unfinished business. Something that was on the list to do. And it just didn't get done. There wasn't enough time. That honey-do list was just a little too long. But it has consequences. My consequence is I still don't have a bed to sleep in. But the consequence for the people of Israel not driving out people of the Canaanites before them had dire consequences. And so tonight as we look at Judges chapter 2, we're going to see a microcosm of the entirety of the book of Judges wrapped into itself. Now, many people when they study the book of Judges, they think of a spiral. And we see this spiral. You see the people disobey, they fall, they are oppressed, that oppression leads to them crying out, and then God sends a deliverer, a judge, and that judge saves them, and they're restored, and then the judge dies, and then the people disobey, and then the Lord judges them, and then the oppression is so great that they cry out again, and the Lord sends another judge, and so on, and so on, and so on. When I started reading this passage, I was hit by many different things. But the first thing that hit me was Joshua dies in this passage. Joshua, the faithful servant of the Lord. It even says that in verse 8. He's not just listed as Joshua, son of Nun, he's not listed as Joshua, son of Nun 
the right hand of Moses or the great military leader. He's not listed as Joshua, the one who brought the people into the promised land. The greatest title Joshua gets and the greatest title he receives before he passes is he is known as Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord. And he lives to a ripe old age of 110. That is a good, faithful, and long life. But what happens after Joshua passes? We don't hear about Joshua's right-hand man. We think of, you have Moses leads the people through the desert, eventually brings along Joshua to kind of help things out. Moses is more of a prophet, discusses things with God, establishes a rapport, uh, leads people in judicial matters. Aaron is the priest. Moses is more of a prophet. And Joshua sort of acts as that military leader, prophet, priest, and king. So you have Joshua, this man of battle, a man whose hands are dipped in blood, who through his warlord-like rampage carved out a land that the people of Israel could live. At least that's what the history books would tell you. But when you read Joshua's history, through the books of Joshua, when he's in Numbers, when you hear about all the stories even up into Judges. And the Lord gave the people into the hand of the Israelites. And the Lord gave the people into the hand of the Israelites. Not a single time do you hear about, and Joshua's ingenuity carried the day. And Joshua's wonderful tactical knowledge of a flanking maneuver or a surprise attack or something that had never been seen before in battle. You never hear about that. Those words are not recorded in Scripture. And there's no even extra-biblical source to even say, oh, wow, this, this Joshua was amazing, tactically speaking. No, Joshua was a servant of the Lord. Every victory was a gift by the hand of God. And the territory conquered was not grasped by a greedy warlord, but was given by the hand of a gracious God. And the people that Joshua worked with, the elders of the people, saw that Joshua was a servant of the Lord, that Joshua was not this warlike leader, but rather was one whose victories were given to him by God, where a son who had stood still in the valley of Adonizadek, where hailstones fall from the sky. Weird things that never should happen, and yet these are the miracles of the Lord. They know what God has done for them. And so the people of the Lord are reminded by Joshua 
and by the elders that outlived him. I was there. I saw what happened at Jericho. I saw what happened at Ai. I saw what happened when we went to this place and that place, when we fought against the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Amalekites and this people and that people and this king and that king. I was there with when Sihon and Og went down. God has been faithful. In fact, when our forefathers were unfaithful in the desert, not only did he send serpents, not only when the Ten Commandments were given and they disobeyed so badly, they were killed off in the desert. Then not a single one of them made it to the promised land. And now here we are. Look what God has done. But even those men are merely men. They faltered. Their time passed. And they passed on. They buried Joshua, the son of Nun. In verse 10, after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how long does it take for the Lord to be forgotten? One generation. One generation. I had friends of mine that I went to high school with, Ileana Christian High School, when it was in Lansing. I grew up with friends that were Reformed and Lutheran. I even knew a Roman Catholic that went there. And we talked about the Bible. We talked about science. We talked about math. We talked about everything that you know, high schoolers talk about. Of the ones I'm still in contact with, I can count the number of the ones that go to church on my hand one hand. Of my friends that I went to college with when I first went out to Dort. And no, I wasn't part of the popular crowd. I've always been a little bit more of an introvert. And so I really made it well with other introverts. Out of those people, that I considered my friends. I had about a group of 20. Myself and one other family go to church. Don't take for granted that just because your children have heard of God, that when they grow up, they will follow him. That is the call to parents. That is the call to grandparents. That is the call to elders in the church and deacons. That is the call to every Christian. Spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. It takes one mere generation for all of heaven 
in a person's life to collapse into the pit of hell. That is the graveness of the situation that we have. We've seen it in our own country. How many years ago was it when you could put in God we trust on our money and nobody had bat an eye? In our classrooms, we were taught B.C. and A.D. And now it's B.C. and C.E. The common era. The common era centered around an event with event. It's a good question. We've gone from a generation that is commonplace of talking about God. In the 1800s, you can read soldiers' letters from the Civil War. And yes, maybe they weren't the most educated. Their penmanship was terrible and their spelling is horrible. But when you read soldiers' letters and they speak about, you know, I wish we would stop fighting on the Sabbath day so that we could demonstrate a little of heavenly peace here. You know, I know this war has been going on. And I've seen the worst that men can do to one another. But I know that whether I make it home or if I meet you on the heavenly shore, that God's peace will reign once again. Quotations from a letter from a soldier from Iowa, of all places. People of God, how long has it been? We go from speaking about God commonplace, have a blessed day, praise the Lord, and now, how many shows that are on TV right now we can't even display in a church setting? Or what language our young people use when they talk to people. I'm a high school soccer referee. This year, and this is just in my personal experience, I have issued more yellow cards for language on a field than I have for fouls. That's how profane it's gotten because it's commonplace. Where is God? How did it happen? It only takes one generation. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Once the previous generation passes, God reveals to the people, the history from the angel. If you look at verses 1 through 5, and this is kind of a, an interesting place for this to go. There's some scholarly insight to verses 1 through 5 because it seems to be a break in the narration. There's this instance of the angel of the Lord going up from Gilgal to Bochim. 
and they offer sacrifices to the Lord. But we don't know when that was. This seems to be sort of an interlude right before we talk about Joshua again. But it fits so well. Because it demonstrates what's about to happen to the people of Israel. The angel of God comes out and says, What are you doing? I've brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You've been given the Ten Commandments. You've been given a land flowing with milk and honey. You have everything laid out before you. And what do you do? You shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And yet they live in peace as neighbors. You have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Unfinished business. And now comes the consequence. I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. The Wall Street Journal a few years ago wrote an article called Redefining God. Colin Smith actually had a sermon about this, and he practically based the entire sermon off of this passage and that article. And in his sermon, and I thought this was an excellent quotation that he took out of it, when you look at what idolatry is, when you look at what people do to disobey God, they turn their hearts they maneuver themselves away. In fact, the Wall Street Journal actually put it this way, and it was, actually, it was amazing, because they talked about redefining. God, God is being redefined by people. Here's what they said. Quote, people are embracing individualistic conceptions of God to suit their own spiritual needs. End quote. The Wall Street Journal I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very Christian publication to me. And yet even they can see it. People are embracing individualistic conceptions of God to suit their own spiritual needs. That's That's what idolatry is. That's what the people of Israel fall into. That's what a Baal or an Asherah really is. The people of Israel come from Egypt go through the desert and enter into the promised land. And they are met with, and I'm not going to go through all the different names. Read Exodus and read Numbers. You'll find plenty of them. But there's 36 different people groups. But all of them typically follow a couple of different gods. The ones in the north typically followed Baal or Baal. Baal was a harvest god. Some of them would call him Lord of the Flies. Baal was a god that was power and rain, and he was the one that would send lightning down 
And he was the one that would water the fields and cause crops to grow from the ground. A God of fertility that allowed for pregnancy and livestock births. In the south, you would have Dagon. Again, a fertility God. Dagon, one who is probably more well-known for later on with the Philistines near the cities of Ashkelon. Dagon, whose head and hands were found on the threshold of his temple, fallen before the Ark of the Covenant after Hophni and Phinehas were killed. But Dagon in the south was worshipped even by the people of Israel at times. A later one, brought down by the Amalekites and the Amorites, was Molech. If you want a god that you absolutely can't stand, it's Molech. The common sacrifices to Molech, you started with firstborn cattle, the cream of the crop of your lambs, the cream of the crop of your cows and of your sheep. And when things got really bad, when no rain would fall, it's because you didn't offer enough. And there are sites up near Dan and even down in the Sinai where the sacrifices of children were found to Molech. But a common one Throughout all of these, these typically were male gods, but the common one was Asherah. Asherah was a female god. We hear about Asherah poles. Uh, we hear about in the time of the judges. Who is it that chops down an Asherah pole and knocks over the altar to Baal that his father puts up? Well, none other than Gideon. Asherah was a female goddess of the earth. And again, fertility from underneath, the growing of green things, the beauty of the world. Exchange truth for a lie. And you start taking God and morphing him to suit your own personal, spiritual needs. I know we were delivered out of the desert by a God, but he's just not tangible for me. I need something. So you know what? My idea of God, as long as I've got a picture or, or even just a necklace or maybe even just a little statue, I can relate then. How long does it take before the statue becomes revered? How long does it take for that statue 
or that picture or that necklace or that relic to now hold more value than it ever should have. How long? One generation. Once you take something and subvert it to make sure that your own personal spiritual needs are met, you no longer have the God of the Bible. Instead, you have a God of your own design. You have a God that, I mean, I know he says to get rid of these people, but they're not bad. I mean, just the other day, Jim showed me how, you know, where the the best places to graze were with my cattle. I can't really do that to him. Yeah, I know he's, he's part of the parasites. I know he's part of the Jebusites. I know, you know, he's, he's, he's you know, King Eglon has, has got his whole band over there. It's, it'll be okay. He, he's peaceful. He's peaceful. He's not going to start any trouble. Oh, he's going to come in and he's going to help us. Give us structure. A king. He'll liberate us from our ideas. And, and we'll have a, a beautiful system that will keep us all happy and healthy and well-maintained. Universal basic income. No, instead, when we put our own comfort, our own well-being, our own individualistic spiritual needs, ahead of the God of the Bible. Our unfinished business, as the famous quote goes, the roosters will come home to roost. And so God turns them over to their own sinful desires. And this is not just something we see in Judges. God turning a group of people over to their own sinful desires is spoken of by Paul. Romans 1. Those with corrupted minds, which lead corrupted lives, which exchange the truth for a lie, are given over to their selfish passions and are therefore corrupted by them. They are handed over. People of God, do not let your children get handed over. Do not let idolatry work its way in with its tendrils little by little. Snuff out the weeds before they can become a true problem. And so we see the spiral begin here. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. Disobedience to God is met with judgment. You break the covenant, 
you get the stipulations. I am your God, and you will be my people. If you no longer want God, then I will no longer treat you as my people. Here you go. Good luck. We teach our children that song. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? What happens when the hands of that loving Heavenly Father is something you constantly try and jump out of? All of the sudden, those loving, providential hands turn into sinners in the hands of an angry God. You want to jump? You want to escape? No, you don't know where you're going. You don't understand how it goes from there. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. He sold them into their enemies all around, and they couldn't resist, even raiders. We're not talking about massive armies coming through and wiping out the people of Israel. We're not talking about generational armies marching from the north or Babylon marching from the east. We're not talking about Egypt coming up from the south and wiping Israel off the face of the earth. We're talking about raiders. We're talking about the basics of the basics. The people who, if you have a strong independent border, you should be able to defend against. And yet, the hand of victory, the hand of God, which gives victory, is not with the people of Israel. And they groaned because they were oppressed and afflicted. And the spiral happens again. Disobedience. Judgment. Oppression. Cry. And then God has pity. Deliverance. This cycle that we see from verses 16 through verses 20 repeats itself over and over and over again. Right after this, we see the minor judges of Othniel and Ehud. We see the judges of Samson and Jephthah. And throughout the lives of these judges, who, by the way, if you've ever read them, they are probably as messed up as anybody else. Ehud acts like a silent assassin. 
Samson is probably the weakest-hearted strongman I've ever seen in my life. Jephthah makes a horrible decision which costs the life of his daughter. You can't even look at the judge and say, wow, they're such an amazing person. Of course we'd follow them. No, they're broken just like us. They're broken just like the people that disobey. They're just as in need of deliverance as anyone else. So people of God, how do we break this cycle? How do we stop going from faithfulness to disobedience to the judgment of God being oppressed by crying out and deliverance again and over and over and over? And we even see it in our lives, don't we? We falter and we fall and, Lord, I, str- I, I will do better. I will try. I will make sure that I have a, uh, I'll make sure I have a, a Bible reading plan and I'll pray every morning and I'll do this and I'll make sure I tithe. How's that going through the Bible in a year going? How's that bookmark that you have to check off every day? Yeah, okay, I've run that chapter, I've read that chapter, I've read that chapter. It's October. Most of us fizzle out about February, March. Gets real tough going through Leviticus. How's your donation plan going? Your gifts of gratitude to those around you? How's your prayer life? Those questions cut me just as much as they cut you. It's so much easier to have good intentions, and it's so hard to follow through. It's so great to have the checklist. And it's so terrible when there's unfinished business. But praise the Lord that he doesn't leave us here. Praise the Lord that our temporary failings are not the end of the story. That when we hear of saints like Tom Beisheisen, like those previous, like Edie Gritter, that have passed on before, This that doesn't matter anymore. Not that it's been scratched out. But that it's been washed clean by the blood of Christ. It's not that they were perfect people. I'm sure those who knew Tom the best or those who knew Edie the best, I'm sure they could say, well, yeah, Tom had his good days and bad days. Edie had his good day, her good days and bad days. We all do. But how do you break the cycle? You break the cycle because there's nothing stronger than the deliverance of the Lamb. We can't look to Othniel, or Ehud, or Joshua. We can't look to Samson, 
or Jephthah. Because they falter. They fall. They're sinful just like you and me. We break the cycle by having a deliverer who is so great, who is so amazing, who washes every sin clean, who dries every tear, who paid the ultimate cost. He's the one that breaks the cycle. And the promise that we have is that deliverance leads to eternal life, a new heavens and a new earth with the guarantee that on Easter Sunday Christ rose from the grave never to die again. The penalty paid once for all. You see the people of Israel here looking at their judges, trying to follow and be faithful would stumble time and time and time again. Because if they looked to the angel of the Lord first, he doesn't say, you haven't done this and you haven't done that and you haven't done this checklist or you haven't done that checklist. What does he say? I will never break my covenant with you. You want to break the cycle? God's already done it. That's the gloriousness of tonight. That's what happens when we read passages like Judges 2. And we hear about sinfulness. We hear about the cycle that people have had. We hear about the horrors of the world around us. We hear about the unfinished business even in our lives. You see people of God. The greatest thing about unfinished business is we have a God who is the author and the finisher of our faith. With him there is no unfinished business. With him there is no checklist. With him there is no cycle. It's all been bought. It's all been paid. It's all been broken. And one day it will all be restored. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask for your blessing. We read about the cycles of your people. We hear about what, what your people have done, the idolatry that rises up in our hearts. Lord, we ask that that cycle would break, that your truth would come out, that we would be reminded of what has already been accomplished for us, that there is no unfinished business, that instead you are the author and finisher of our faith, that you, O Lord, are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you will make all things new. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.